Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Give you an opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that we have you to come to, that you are a God who tells the end and the beginning. You are a God who foretells the future with 100% accuracy. And as we go through this study in Genesis 49, it's not just a study in history, not just a study of interesting um, events that have taken place, but it reveals the, the accuracy of your prophetic word. And now as we continue this study, we pray that we might... Uh, be strengthened and encouraged as we see the panorama of history work itself out according to your plan. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49 now down to verse 27. Genesis 49, 27. We've gone through 11 of the brothers, and now we're down to the last one, the youngest, the uh, favorite next to Joseph, the last child born to Rachel. This is Benjamin. Now, it seems that when we go through a study of Benjamin, we read just the little bit that there is in Genesis. Uh, Benjamin just being born, basically, and his father's favorite when uh, the older brothers all left to go to Egypt. He was kept at home. We get the impression that he might have been just a little bit uh, pampered, just a little bit protected, just a little bit spoiled. And so when we come suddenly to this, uh, prophecy of Jacob's in verse 27, it seems to jar us a little bit. It doesn't seem to fit with Benjamin himself. Well, let me see if I can find my... There we go. Verse 27, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. There's not a whole lot there. That's the conclusion of the, the prophecy. And then the final statement is in verse 28. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. And this is what their father spoke to them, and he noticed the repetition. And he blessed them, and he blessed each one according to his own blessing. Now, it shouldn't take a whole lot of effort to figure out what the key idea in that last verse is, and that's blessing. When the Holy Spirit repeats a word three times in a verse, it's designed to make a point. Unlike modern writers who are taught in school that it is repetitive and boring and bad form to repeat the same word more than two or three times within even a page, the Holy Spirit uses repetition in order to bring out the point. And the point here is that these 
statements of Joseph of Jacob's this prophecy is in a sense a blessing. It is a statement of how God is going to work through the twelve sons, even though not everything that is said is positive, it is still comes under the category of a uh, patriarchal blessing. Now, when we look at verse 27, we see the focus of this last uh, prophetic word is related to Benjamin. And Benjamin is described as a ravenous wolf. This is uh, the fifth time in this uh, section that Jacob has described the future of one of his sons or the tribes that will come from his sons in terms of an animal. He's used uh, lions and lambs and other animals. Here, Benjamin's a ravenous wolf. So let's just review a little bit about what we know about Benjamin. Benjamin it was the youngest son of Jacob and Rachel. Rachel, as you well know by now, was barren for many, many years, and in desperation she had cried out to Jacob and to God to provide her with a son. And finally, God answered that prayer, and she gave birth to Joseph. And his name, as we studied last time, means that God means to be added to something, that God had added to her a blessing and given her a son. Her second son is Benjamin, and we are told the story of his birth in Genesis 35, uh, 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath. Now Ephrath is the Canaanite name for the village that is later known as Bethlehem. And we see those two names linked together in Micah 5.2, where we have one of the most precise prophecies related to the coming of the Messiah, that he would be born in Bethlehem Ephrata. That's where that name comes together, Bethlehem being the Jewish name, Beit Lechem, Beit being the Hebrew word for house, and Lechem for uh, bread, the house of bread. I understand that in Arabic, Lechem is meat, but it is the house of bread, uh, the ancient Canaanite village of uh, Ephrath, and Rachel goes into labor, and she uh, is in childbirth, has hard labor. In verse 17, we read, Now it came to pass, when she was in hard labor, that the midwife said to her, Do not be afraid, you will have this son also, a little foreshadowing that maybe things won't go so well. Verse 18, And so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died, that in her parting words she named her son Ben-Oni, which in the Hebrew, has the idea, son of my pain. But his father called him Ben-Yamin, which means son of my right hand. So Benjamin's the youngest son of Jacob and Rachel, and he has a special place in the heart of Jacob. Verse 20, Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. You can, uh, I think at times, you can still visit Rachel's tomb in Bethlehem. We didn't get there last year. It was pointed out to us. It was behind that gas station over there. But in some pictures I've seen, there is quite an edifice there, just that we were unable to go there. So point number two, Rachel called him son of my pain, whereas Jacob renamed him son of my right hand, which shows the way he honored uh, his wife, Rachel, viewing her as his right hand. Uh, the irony here is that he calls 
calls him Benjamin, son of my right hand, and the tribe of Benjamin was known because the vast majority of Benjamites were left-handed. They were almost all a tribe of lefties. So, see, God has a great sense of humor. Point number three. Next to Joseph, Benjamin was the favorite of Jacob, and when Joseph disappeared, Benjamin became the center of his father's attention. He doted on Benjamin. Whenever the brothers left to go on any kind of mission, Benjamin always had to stay home. He wasn't going to allow to happen to Benjamin what had happened to Joseph. He had full well understood the jealousy, the mental attitude sins, the hatred that the older brothers had for Joseph, and he, I'm sure, suspected them because as a father with the same deceitful sin nature that he had passed on to his sons, he could see their their trends very well, and he was not going to allow uh, Benjamin out of his sight. Now, when we come to this prophecy, this will be point number four, Jacob's prophecy, though, doesn't focus on Benjamin himself, but on the characteristics of the tribe that will come from Benjamin, and he emphasizes their military Ferocity. They are pictured as ravenous wolves. You get this sense of brutality, of violence, of strength that is going to be present in those who come from Benjamin. They are going to be known for their ferocity in battle, their military prowess. When Jacob refers to him as a ravenous wolf, he is comparing him to a wolf that is that is hungry. First of all, a wolf is untamed. It's wild. It can be quite vicious. And then if it is hungry, even more so, and can be uh, quite dangerous. He goes on to say that uh, in the last two clauses, in the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. So you have this contrast between morning and night. And we studied this before that in uh, language, when you want to talk about the totality of something, you use two opposites, such as meditate on God's word day and night. God created the heavens and the earth. That uh, uh, God is God's word is preached in the heavens and on earth and below the earth. These are terms that are used to describe the totality of something that not to be taken in a sense literally, I think recently in, in Revelation we're talking about that the angels searched for someone qualified to open the scroll and they searched in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And that does not mean that there's literally a place under the earth. It's, that whole phrase should be understood as a merism where you're talking about the opposites to explain the totality of the, of the universe. So the emphasis in between those last two clauses is that it includes a totality of the life of the tribe. In the morning would also indicate at the early stages of the history of the tribe. In the evening, the latter stages of the history of the tribe. In other words, the tribe from beginning to end, and in the book of, uh, I mean, in the scriptures, we see that from our first emphasis on those who are from the tribe of Benjamin, there is this ferocity, there is almost a, a bloodthirst that characterizes the tribe. And we see that all the way down even to the last person mentioned in the scripture who is from the tribe 
of Benjamin. And so there is this violence, this ferocity, this brutality that will characterize uh, the Benjamites. Now, point number five, when Benjamin, uh, when the tribe of Benjamin left Egypt at the Exodus, now between Genesis 49 and Exodus 14 through 16, when we have the Exodus event, there's no mention of Benjamin other than in just the list of the tribes in, in the early part of Exodus. The next time we have anything significant said about Benjamin is in the first chapter of Numbers, in Numbers 137. And when they left Egypt, they had 35,400 men of fighting age, 20 and above. So they left the land with 20, I mean, left Egypt with 35,400. But at the end of the 40 years in the wilderness, as they prepare to enter into the promised land, we see that God has blessed Benjamin. They, they don't seem to be a tribe that has been characterized by the rebelliousness that brought about the death of so many because there's, their numbers increase to 45,600. So they have approximately a little over 10,000 member increase in the males in the tribe. So the tribe actually grows in size and in strength prior to entering in into the land. Now, <clears throat> the sixth point focuses on what happens just before we uh, go into the land. And in each of these studies, I've tried to talk about uh, the, the birth of the individual, then what happens to the tribe in the Exodus event, and on into uh, the book of Numbers and the conquest. And just prior to the conquest, as the tribes prepare to enter the land, Moses gave a blessing on the various tribes and on individual tribes. And in Deuteronomy 33:12, he gives a prophecy related to Benjamin that seems uh, just the opposite of what Jacob says. Jacob emphasizes their uh, military prowess, their ferocity, their fighting spirit, their violence, uh, violent tendencies. But in Deuteronomy 33:12, Moses says of Benjamin, May the beloved of the Lord dwell in security by him who shields him all the day and he dwells between his shoulders. Now, what in the world does that mean? Because that seems to contradict the violence stated earlier. Well, you have to understand something about the allotment of the tribes, which comes up in the next point. So we'll just go ahead and go to the next point and then we'll... Take a look at how they come together. Benjamin, point number seven, Benjamin was allotted the territory that was just north of the tribal allotment for Judah and just south of the tribal allotment of Ephraim. And here's a map showing the overall allotment of the tribes and the large green area here to the south is Judah. The sort of light, lighter green color here in the center is a area of Ephraim, another strong tribe, and it's this purple area right here in the center to the uh, eastern part, just north and northeast of Jerusalem, is the tribe of Benjamin, just to the east of the allotment for the tribe of Dan. So that puts Benjamin in a, an extremely important area that had uh, various key cities within their territory, Jericho. Bethel, Gibeon, Ramah, Mizpah, 
were all within the tribal allotment of Benjamin. But Jerusalem is also within Benjamin's tribal allotment. And Jerusalem, as we have studied, is the prized possession of God. This is the city on which God has set his affection. This is Jerusalem that God has said will be his dwelling place where he dwelled among the cherubim in the temple, in the Solomonic temple in the Old Testament where Jesus will return at the second coming, where there will be a temple in the, in the distant future. And so when we look at that prophecy in Deuteronomy 33.12, we think of that in terms of the proximity to Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. May the beloved of the Lord dwell in security. The beloved of the Lord, Benjamin, is going to be specially blessed because Benjamin is going to have... Uh, control of the territory where God will dwell in Jerusalem. And uh, so the uh, blessing is, may the beloved of the Lord dwell in security by him, proximity, a preposition of proximity there, uh, who shields him uh, all the day. God will specially protect Benjamin because of the proximity to the Temple Mount, and he dwells between his shoulders. So this is a prophecy that is related to Benjamin's uh, geographical uh, proximity to the dwelling of God on the Temple Mount. So point number six, just to summarize, make sure you got it. Before his death, Moses announces a blessing on Benjamin, Deuteronomy 33.12. Point number seven, Benjamin is assigned the territory just north of Judah, south of Ephraim, between those two uh, large, powerful tribes. And their territory includes uh, six major cities, six key cities. Eighth point, Jerusalem itself was within the territory of Benjamin, according to Joshua 18.28. Now that takes us up through Joshua. Just remember, as you think through Scripture, you start off with the beginnings, the beginning of Israel, the beginning of Abraham, the beginning of the tribes. That's what we're focusing on with the 12 sons of of Jacob. Then in Exodus, we have the exit from Egypt. Numbers focuses on their wanderings in the wilderness, focuses on the failure at Kadesh Barnea. Then they end up at the end of the book of Numbers uh, about to enter into the land. Leviticus uh, just deals with other aspects of the law. Deuteronomy is Moses' final words to them before he goes up on Mount Nebo to die. And then we have the conquest. So we go from the exodus to the wilderness and then to the conquest. At the conquest, we see that the the united tribes are successful as they enter the land, uh, crossing just north of the Dead Sea. They cross to Jericho, then Ai. Then they'll circle around, uh, go up into the central highlands and have a few major battles there head down and defeat a coalition of the southern Canaanite kings, and then they defeat the uh, northern Canaanite kings. That's the general uh, outline of of Joshua. But then there's a mopping up operation. Once they take out the major military powers among the Canaanites, that doesn't mean they've taken control of all the territory. And as we've seen, from the book of from the end of Joshua as well as the first couple of chapters in, in Judges, that as time went by, 
time went by, they began to compromise with the Canaanites rather than complete annihilation of every man, woman, child, and in many cases all of their animals. They began to compromise, and as they enter into spiritual compromise and compromise with the religious system and the idolatry of the Canaanites, which begins to affect them, then they're no longer able to defeat the Canaanites. And this is what happens to the Benjamites. In Judges chapter 1, we'll spend a little time tonight in Judges because that's where you see a significant amount of the fulfillment of this prophecy. In Judges 121, we see that the Benjamites uh, initially uh, capture Jerusalem, they, but they're not able to drive out and completely defeat the Jebusites. But there's this uh, enough of a conquest to where they are able to live in Jerusalem, but alongside the Jebusites. Now, they eventually lost even that uh, control, that much control of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem reverted back to the control of the Jebusites until David defeated them uh, in about Second Samuel chapter chapter five. And it's not until chapter six and chapter seven that the ark begins to be moved to Jerusalem. So the Benjamites have only a limited success, but they're not able to take full control over uh, Jerusalem. They coexist with the Jebusites, and as a result, they begin to assimilate pagan values. When they are living alongside the Canaanites, they just assimilate all of their all of their values. And as we've seen in our review of Judges throughout several of these uh, studies, the focus of the book of Judges is on how the nation becomes paganized. And it's a tremendous study in how any civilization, any group of believers that compromises with the human viewpoint system of the culture around them, uh, gradually compromises and loses their spiritual integrity and begin to act and think, use the vocabulary, the phrases of the culture around them. They want to fit in. They want to seem like they're compatible with everybody, that we're not uh, actually all that hostile. But what we see today is that the, the unbelieving, atheistic, secular world around us has now become so strong that you can't compromise at all as a Christian or you will be devoured by the pagan culture around you. Just a case in point, if you hadn't uh, been watching any, any news in the last couple of weeks, but Answers in Genesis just opened yesterday their creation museum in, uh, up in sort of north-central uh, Kentucky, just south across the state line from Cincinnati. And this just has irritated the heck out of all of the uh, evolutionists, and they are up in arms. They don't realize how much wonderful publicity we're getting off of their antagonism to the museum. And they are on radio and they're on television just screaming about this and how horrible this is that these creationists who are just believing this myth like there's any truth to evolution. I mean, talk about, talk about neurotic, psychotic, uh, divorced from reality people uh, making judgments on other people, nothing like an evolutionist who comes along and th- says that a creationist isn't living in reality. But nevertheless, they have been deceived by Satan and the satanic system into thinking that the earth is 
tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of years old, and just in complete violation of, of Scripture, because they, the unbelievers have to be able to answer the question, where did you come from? Everybody wants to know where you came from, and if you reject God, you have to develop some sort of mythology. And as we've developed in the past, and if you are interested, you probably go back to the early stages of, of Genesis to catch up on it, but modern evolutionary scientific uh, Darwinistic thought is really a the uh, sort of a pseudo scientific uh, veneer g- given to or applied to or, or cloaking or camouflaging just the same old uh, mythology that you had back with the Babylonians it begins with chaos. Everything is basically oriented to death for no reason whatsoever, and it's only through the mechanism of death that there's any any progress whatsoever. That's what all evolution teaches, is that death is the uh, pathway to advance. And that's where you, you know, they, they talk about survival of the fittest. Survival of the fittest means that something doesn't survive. And the, the only way you can be fitter than something else is to destroy it and to kill it. And so the, the mechanism of advance is violence, it is some sort of struggle uh, for survival. But that little phrase, survival of the fittest, sounds so catchy and so many people buy into it. But it, survival of the fittest never answers the question related to the arrival of the fittest. How did it get there in the first place? And so it's just smoke and mirrors. Let's not talk about origins. Let's just talk about survival of the fittest and, and come up with some little catchy phrases that never answer any questions and use the same old tired uh, illustrations to try to prove that uh, mutations add something, some beneficial information into the gene pool. And they just don't. And it's been proven again and again. But that's what happens in paganism. Now we live in a culture where where the pagans feel so strong that they just come out of the woodwork in blatant assaults against Christianity. And some of you, I meant to bring it with me tonight, but I left it on my desk, that a bill just passed the state legislature in Texas uh, that is going to allow children in public schools in Texas to actually talk about God and to pray. And so it is an affirmation of religious freedom and practice in Texas public schools. So that's a nice, uh, fresh win. But I understand that it, and the, it, it looked like it was going to fail passage, and only at the last minute did it get resurrected and, and pass. So for that, we can be, be very thankful. But when the pagans around us gain power, they attack Christians. And unfortunately, most Christians lack the intellectual foundation to withstand these attacks on the one hand. Psychologically, we don't like it because there's something inside of most of us that we don't want to be thought of as odd or strange. We certainly don't like to be thought of as religious fanatics, that we're out there somehow on the edge and we're really, you know, you people who believe that, Jesus is going to come back and you're just going to all disappear from the planet. I mean, how cultic can that be? Uh, that sounds like something right out of uh, Star Wars or Star Trek or something like that. How bizarre that you can really believe that and you call yourself educated? Well, you're just, you're just believing in mythology. And so we're made to feel small and stupid 
and backward, and nobody likes to think that that's the image that they project, so there is this pull within our sin nature to try to become acceptable. And that happened in a major way with the Jews as they assimilated and compromised with the pagan culture. And what we see as we go through the book of Judges is they start off with just small steps of compromise. But by the time you get to the end of the book of Judges, the Jews don't look any different than the pagan Canaanites. In in fact, they out-pagan the pagans. They're more violent than the pagans. They're more idolatrous than the pagans. And that's what happens to believers who compromise with the world system is as they go further and further into carnality, they end up looking more uh, carnal than the unbelievers around them. And that's why a lot of Christians say, well, how can they be a Christian? Look at their lifestyle. No, they believe in Jesus Christ, so they're saved, but they have just done the same thing that the Old Testament Jews did. You see, the Old Testament, these Old Testament Jews never lost their position in Abraham. They never lost their position in that unconditional covenant, even though they were disobedient. The same way a believer in Jesus Christ can never lose his position in Christ, even though he will lose his uh, any blessing that he has in time and forfeit future rewards. And the same thing happened to the Jews. They forfeited their inheritance, their possessions in time, even though they never lost their positional standing in Abraham. Well, we can see how this uh, works itself out in the tribe of Benjamin. Remember, the prophecy had to do with their ferocity, their brutality, their violence. And we see this in several of the key Benjamites in history. The first example we have of a Benjamite is Ehud in Judges chapter 3. This is the second judge. The first judge was Othniel. Nothing negative is said about Othniel whatsoever. But Ehud, Ehud is is craftier. He is pictured as one who adopts pagan strategies in order to accomplish his end. Now, it's not too bad. It's just subtle things that are said in the text in the way he handles uh, handles the situation. And he is he has a particular ability that he is going to exploit, and that has to do with the indicates that he is from the tribe of Benjamin. So the uh, Moabites uh, conquer the Jews. This would have happened, and let's go back to our map here. Moab is down here to the east and southeast of the Dead Sea. And the Moabites came up uh, around the northern part of the, uh, of, of, the, of the Dead Sea and into the central highlands here and gained control over part of that area. Not the entire part of the land, but just a good section in the southern and southeastern part of the land. And they came under the dominion of the king of Moab for 18 years. And finally, the Israelites were told, cried out to the Lord. Now, they haven't truly repented. Repent means simply to change your mind. Fundamentally, it means to just change. In other words, quit assimilating with the pagan practices of the culture around you and start applying doctrine. Well, there's no change that takes place, but they do cry out to the Lord. And God in his grace, just like he does with us, when we haven't really dealt with the real problem, we just 
uh, say, Lord, I'm tired of the discipline. I, I, okay, I'll straighten up my act. And God in His grace uh, gives us uh, some moments of blessing until we just take advantage of Him again. And that's what happens uh, all through the period of the judges. But God raises up a deliverer. His name's Ehud. And he's a left-handed man. Now, militarily, this was not understood yet, and there's just a minority of, of men in Israel that are left-handed, so the Moabites really hadn't had to deal with this in terms of a, a tactic in warfare. And so Ehud is going to exploit his uh, left-handedness, and he takes a dagger, and he ties it under his clothes, on his right thigh. So he's going to have a cross draw for that dagger, but normally the dagger would be on the left side for a right-handed man. So when they search him, they're not very sophisticated yet, so they don't search both thighs. They just search the left thigh, and it appears that he is uh, not armed. And so he goes in to see Eglon. Now this story it's one of my favorites. I love to kind of draw it out because it's a, there's a tremendous amount of humor here. And it's not politically correct humor because the Holy Spirit likes to poke fun at, at people who are uh, <coughs> carnal or unbelieving pagans. And Eglon was a, a, a corpulent man. And in fact, his name is uh, derived from a, a word that basically would be translated as fatty. So his name, Eglon, has that uh, connotation of a fat man. And he's, ex- he's extremely large. And Ehud takes the tribute money to him. And then he, then he leaves. Says, Everything's fine. and gets back to Gilgal. Now, remember, Gilgal is up here uh, just north of the Dead Sea, just a little bit uh, northeast of Jericho. And so he heads back to Gilgal. And then he leaves his party, and he's going to go back and sneak in and assassinate Eglon. So he gets back there at a time when Ehud is basically up in the restroom. He's up in the outhouse up on the roof, and the guards go up there, and Ehud tells him that he has a message from God for him. And, and when Moab, I mean, Eglon comes out to get the message, Ehud assassinates him. He executes his cross draw and sticks his dagger into uh, Eglon's belly. And in verse 22, we're told, even the hilt went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade for he did not draw the dagger out of his belly and his entrails came out. So he basically tries to eviscerate Eglon uh, right there at the outhouse. This is a very violent scene. But it describes the, the death, and it fulfills the trend within the tribe of Benjamin. Well, Ehud gets away because all the servants are afraid to go up there and disturb the king while he is uh, taking his rest break. And so there's a lot of humor there. And Ehud gets away, and thus he delivers, uh, delivers the Jews, and they have <coughs> freedom from oppression for 80, 80 years. Now, Ehud uses some uh, rather uh, deceptive tactics, and there's nothing wrong with that uh, militarily, but there's the way some of this is handled in the text uh, has a little bit of a, of a negative nuance to it in the way he's handling the tribute and, and being somewhat secretive in the whole process. 
and yet he is a he's a tremendous judge and he is honored as such. Then the next episode with the Benjamites comes at the end of the period of the judges in one of the appendices, and this is in uh, Judges chapter 19 and 20. Well, I don't have time to go through the whole thing, but at this point, Benjamin is sh- shows their uh, spiritual apostasy, and they are they come under the uh, <clears throat> they are going to be attacked by the rest of the tribes. In, in uh, uh, Judges chapter 19, we have the story about a Levite who is staying in the remote mountains of Ephraim. Now, remember our map, Ephraim is the territory just north of, of Benjamin. And we have the story that he takes for himself a concubine, and then he uh, goes down to his father's house in Bethlehem, which is in Judah, just south of Benjamin. So he's traveling through the territory uh, of Benjamin, and he goes down there and stays with him for a while. Finally, he needs to go back home, and on the way back, he is traveling by Jebus in verse uh, 10. He's traveling by Jebus, which is the Jebusite city, also known as Jerusalem. And he won't go into Jerusalem because of the pagans that are there. Uh, look down at verse 11. They were near Jebus, and the day was far spent. And the servant said to his master, Come, please, and let us turn aside into the city of the Jebusites. Lodge there. But his master said, No, we won't turn aside into a city of foreigners. So by this time, the Benjamites no longer have control over Jerusalem. Uh, they're not the children of Israel. We'll go on to Gibeah. And so they go on to Gibeah, and then there's a story told that is very similar to the episode at Sodom. They get into Gibeah uh, of Benjamin. And so this is in the territory of the Benjamites, and there are, uh, he goes out to the city square where he's going to, he and his concubine would just sleep for the night, and there's a man there who is from Ephraim, and the man warns him that this is a, this is a, a, a terrible thing, that they must stay inside. You are not to stay out in the open square. And what happens is the men in the town are going to want to come and just, um, uh, have perverted sex with the concubine, and so the the man demonstrates, I mean, the Levite Levitical priest demonstrates his lack of masculinity. But he, they have uh, been welcomed into the home of a of a man there, and the man tries to bargain with these perverts to not be so wicked. That's down in verse 23. In fact, the man tries to buy them off by offering them his virgin daughter. You see how pagan the Jews have become at this particular, at this particular time. And so uh, they reject his virgin daughter because they want uh, the man and his concubine. So finally the man, uh, the Levite, gives his concubine to them, and they uh, abuse her all night long and end up killing her. And the next morning, he discovers her dead, and so he cuts her body up. He's outraged over this. So as a call to arms to the rest of the tribes of Israel, he cuts her body up into 12 pieces, and he sends one part to each of the 12 tribes to call them to action, see what a horrible thing has taken place in Benjamin. So the 11 tribes now are going to execute uh, vengeance on the tribe of Benjamin because they've become so perverse 
uh, by this particular time. And, of course, all of this speaks of their brutality, their, 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 their brutality towards this woman, their abusiveness. And uh, there's a, about a four-day battle. Benjamin has uh, 700 left-handed stone slingers that are mentioned in Judges 20, verse 16. And the first two days of battle, they inflict 40,000 casualties on the other tribes. But on the third day, the battle, the tide of battle turns, and the Benjamites are almost annihilated. Only 600 men out of, how many did I say earlier when they came across? There were 45,000. So only 600, there were like 45,600 that came into the land under Joshua. So if the numbers are anywhere close, they lose all but the 645,000 Benjamites are slaughtered in this particular battle. So they become an extremely weakened tribe and are almost completely obliterated from history uh, by the other Jews because of their perversity. So once again, we see something about their violence, their ferocity, and how that follows them. The third major uh, event related to Benjamin has to do with the first uh, king that God anoints has anointed over Israel, and that is Saul. Remember, Saul's not the first king that is anointed over Israel. The first king that's anointed over Israel was Abimelech, Gideon's son. wasn't anointed by God, but the men of Shechem back in Judges 9 chose Abimelech and anointed him king of Israel. You can't avoid that. When anybody asks you that trivia question, who was the first king of Israel? It wasn't Saul. It's a trick question. Saul is the first one that God chooses, not, but he's not the first one anointed over uh, Israel by man. So Saul is the first king. Now Saul is a prominent, uh, he, he's really a um, uh, sort of, he, he's the son of a, of a rather uh, uh, minor clan within Benjamin, and yet God chooses him. But he's tall. He looks, he looks kingly. He's tall. He has great military ability. Saul uh, defeated the Amalekites, and the Amalekites were a tremendous uh, scourge in the ancient world. They were like a, tra- a traveling uh, civilization of terrorists. There were maybe as many as uh, 100, 150,000 of them, and they traveled, uh, migrated across uh, Arab, uh, Arabia, Egypt, uh, all through the Middle East, and all the civilizations have records related to these bands that would come and just uh, go through and rape and pillage and destroy. And Saul destroys them. Not quite. Remember, God told him to kill every one of them, all of their cattle and all their sheep and all their children and all the women, and he didn't do it. And that's when Samuel came and said, Hmm, what's this bleeding of the sheep that I'm hearing? And, and who's this uh, king? And Agag, the king of the Amalekites, is there. And Saul gives him the old uh, religious rationale. Well, I just thought I'd save the best for God. And um, so a great scene. If you ever saw the uh, movie King David with Richard Gere, now there's, they, they had a good historical advisor to that film. And so there's a lot of stuff in there that is uh, historically pretty accurate. But I just love the scene. I think it was Edward uh, Woodward plays Samson. And he comes in and he reaches over to Saul and grabs his sword and spins and in a very neat stroke just decapitates Agag. And it's such a great 
seen of the power of the prophet. The prophet's job was to make sure that the law was obeyed. That was the prophet's task. He is God's representative. He's like the prosecuting attorney for God in reference to the Mosaic law. You see the same kind of thing that happened uh, several hundred years later with Elijah. When Elijah defeated the prophets of Baal and the Asherah on Mount Carmel, he then killed all of them. Now, he kills all of them because as the prosecutor for the Mosaic law, his job is to make sure that the law is fulfilled, and the law said that all false prophets were to be executed. And so Elijah carries that out. Now, we're going to study Elijah when we finish Genesis because for a couple of reasons, but the uh, one is I love Elijah, and two is that I'm getting feedback from the prep school that as they get into the middle of the um, Old Testament, I haven't covered a lot of this stuff, and so they're wanting information. I was going to start Colossians, but I thought it might be better to take two or three months and do a study of Elijah, and then when we finish Elijah, we'll do uh, we'll go to Colossians. But Elijah is a great story. But you see the same kind of thing with with Samuel. He comes in and he kills Agag because that's what God had said to do. And that, of course, is when he announces that the kingdom is taken from Saul. So Saul is a, a powerful man. He has, uh, he has he's engaged in a number of military campaigns that defeat the enemies of, of Israel. He is, he is a great warrior. It's only later in life, after that event of a rebellion, that his carnality dis- begins to destroy his moral courage and he becomes the uh, coward that you see at the end of First Samuel. Jonathan, is, as his son, is also the tribe of Benjamin and a tremendous warrior, and there's a battle scene described in 1 Samuel chapter 14 where he and his armor bearer go out on their own and they uh, climb up a sheer cliff to get behind the Philistines and they attack a Philistine garrison of 20 soldiers and he slaughters all of them and this led to a complete rout among the Philistines and gave the uh, Israelites an edge under the surprise attack and they were able to defeat the the uh, Philistines in that particular battle. However, you also have a problem with uh, Saul having a rather uh, unwise vow at the time, and I'm not going to get into all of that, but it just shows Jonathan, again, is this great warrior. You continue to have these traits displayed of, of power and strength, fighting ability, and that can be, if it's in carnality, it's going to be brutal and vicious and violent and uh, negative if it's... Uh, uh, done in obedience to the Lord, then it would be it was very positive. You also have other brutal, violent uh, Benjamites, such as Abner, who was Saul's cousin, and also a general of the army. He brutally kills Azahel, and then Joab has to murder uh, uh, Abner. Uh, Esther and Mordecai are also from the tribe of Benjamin. This is a little later on in the history of Israel during the time of the uh, uh, of the exile and, and the post-exilic period when God is protecting Israel outside of the land. And they have a tremendous zeal for God and are used uh, powerfully uh, by him. And they end up, and remember in the uh, 
a prophecy in Genesis 49:27. In the evening, that'd be later on, they will divide the spoil. Well, at the end of Esther, at the book of Esther and the story, there is the spoil of the uh, anti-Semites that are destroyed by the Jews are divided among the Jews. So in the evening, they will divide the spoil. So there's a fulfillment of that in Esther chapters 7 and 9. And then we come to the New Testament. And there's one key figure in the New Testament who is a violent, murderous, vicious, brutal son of Benjamin. And that is Saul of Tarsus before he became a believer. And we read various passages in the uh, New Testament that describe him. In uh, Romans 11.1, 1, he talks about the fact that he is an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin. He reinforces that again in Philippians 3.5, where he says he was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and is touching the law of Pharisee. So he was called Saul because he was in the lineage, most likely, of King Saul. And so that name was a tribal name that was passed on from generation to generation as they looked back. Now, we know from Galatians 1.13 that he tells in his testimony how he persecuted the church of God before he became a believer. He was so uh, zealous for the truth as he saw it as a Pharisee that he, when, when this Christian cult came along and these people who started worshiping Jesus came along, he did everything in his self-righteous zeal to completely eradicate the Christians. He was responsible for going around and uh, arresting them, beating them, throwing them into prison. He was responsible for the murder, the execution, the martyrdom of hundreds of uh, believers in those early years of the church as he attempted to completely destroy it. In Acts 22.4, he says, I persecuted this way unto death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. And uh, Acts 26, verses 9 and 10, he said, I thought within myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. So we see that in his, in his humanity, in his natural genetic inheritance, Saul followed in the brutal path of, of the tribe of Benjamin. And it's not until Acts chapter 9 when the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him when he was on the way to Damascus in order to once again take into, his, in, in, into custody a number of uh, believers to have them arrested, put in prison, and killed that he realized that Jesus Christ was indeed who he claimed to be, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, uh, eternal God and his Savior, and he fell upon his knees, blinded by the light of the Lord Jesus, but recognizing that he uh, had been persecuting not just uh, uh, Jews who were in error, but those who were following the truth. So from that day forward, his zeal shifted, and instead of persecuting the church, he began to promote the truth, And but his zeal was still evident. It's, it's very interesting. I haven't looked at this verse in a while, but it's very interesting. If you look at Acts chapter, Acts chapter 8, 
I don't believe there are any um, any <coughs> real. Um, well, it's Acts chapter nine. Any real um, uh, coincidences in the Word of God? But Paul is saved on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter nine, and then he uh, goes down to. Then he goes back to Jerusalem, and he is so zealous. If you look at verse thirty or verse twenty-nine, he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. He's still stirring the pot. He's full of the zeal of a brand new believer without any information, and he's causing such a ruckus that in verse thirty, when the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out. To Tarsus, and don't don't just keep reading. Don't there's a break in my Bible there. There's a verse break, but you just keep reading. This is the humor of the Holy Spirit. They they brought him down to Caesarea, sent him out to Tarsus. Then the churches throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. He was a bull in a china closet. He was causing too much trouble. But once they got him out of there, sent him back to Tarsus so he could calm down and learn a little bit. And, and get past this zeal of the brand new believer, then the churches in Judea and Galilee finally had a little peace and they could grow spiritually. So that wraps up our study of uh, Jacob's prophecy. This is Tuesday night. Next Tuesday night, Ike will begin a study of Exodus. And uh, you don't want to miss that. Exodus is a tremendous study. And he's going to start that, just go night after night through Exodus, the two weeks I'm gone. And then I'll be gone a little later on in the summer. I'll be going up to Preston City to conduct an ordination exam for David Rosalind. So I'll be gone a few days then. But I will just keep, keep taking everybody through Exodus, and that will be a great study. He and I are meeting together on a weekly basis as I'm taking him through Exodus. So this will be a great uh, great study for everybody. Let's bow our heads and close in closing prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to being encouraged by the way prophecy is 100% accurate and works itself out in history. Father, we are reminded whenever we study prophecy of all the prophecies that were fulfilled by our Lord Jesus Christ, demonstrating that he is who he claimed to be, the eternal second person of the Trinity and the Old Testament Messiah, sent to die on the cross for our sins. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us and encourage us with the things we've studied this evening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.